Welcome to the Two Writing Teachers podcast. Two Writing Teachers is a meeting place for a world of reflective writers. Here on the podcast, we are excited to talk about ways to create, lead, and sustain joyful and productive writing workshops. My name is Stacey Schubitz, and I'm here with my colleague, Melanie Meehan. Let's work together to inspire and empower students to be competent, brave, and confident writers. Before getting started with the upcoming episode, I want to thank today's sponsor, SA-Grader AI. SA-Grader AI is a tool that allows school teachers to grade essays in seconds, potentially saving teachers hours up to 70 to 80% of the time they usually spend on grading essays. While the idea is not to replace teachers, SA-Grader AI makes it easier to grade essays and it also provides feedback, identifies grammar errors, and suggests an overall grade. Teachers can review the tool's output, edit the results, and add their own comments and feedback. Maybe the best part of SA-Grader AI is that the tool is free for grading 15 essays a month. You can get started by using the link in the show notes, sa-grader.ai. If you use the promo code TWT20, you will receive a 20% discount on any paid plans. And now on to today's episode. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here today with my colleague, Melanie Meehan. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Today draws on some of our expertise as educators who have really spent a lot of time with writing workshop, but it also draws on Melanie's expertise in the world of special education. It draws also on a lot of the research I'm doing for the book that I'm writing. It's a book for parents, so a little different than stuff I've written in the past about guiding their kids through elementary school when their child has a disability. So we are excited to talk about this today. Melanie, can you share a little bit about your background? Because I feel like our listeners and our readers may not realize just how much experience you have in the world of special education. Yeah, so I started my career working in an on-ground school for residential kids. Mm -hmm. That was really my own classroom where Mm -hmm. I taught those students, they all had IEPs because their IEPs were related to behavioral issues. And mm-hmm. that was, that had been kind of their ticket in. But then when I went back to work, I went back as a special education teacher in a read, in a read, in a resource kind of environment, mm-hmm. really focusing on learning disabilities. And I did that for a number of years across high school and elementary school, working in classrooms in all content areas, but with a passion for writing. Mm -hmm. So it's funny, like when I look back on it now, because if only I knew then what I know now, I would, I would really have been great at moving kids in their writing goals, but certainly I have an understanding and awareness of IEPs and procedures and processes. And um, I think what I, I, the whole universal design for learning concepts that underlie those principles, I think we should just spend a little bit of time talking about because so much of what was involved with being a special educator in those Mm -hmm. classrooms And what I see now as being a writing support person 
is just good instruction. And that's what right. is, that's what underlies the principles of UDL. Right. And if we think about UDL, which is for anyone who's not aware of it, it's basically an approach that allows you to accommodate the needs and abilities of all learners and eliminates any um, barriers and unnecessary hurdles. So that is really workshop teaching. Good workshop teaching really draws on all of those principles and parts of UDL. Those three principles are really part of every good writing workshop. Right. So like if we think, all right, what are the different ways that kids learn? We we address those. If we think, what are the different tools that kids need in order to access what they're learning? It's We're looking at that. And what are we looking to ask kids to do in order to demonstrate their learning? I think if you just think of it in those principles, there's so much that we can do in order to facilitate kids' success, whether they have IEPs or whether they have 504s or whether they're just they got nothing and they're rock stars, like that, that, that they can just do anything you ask them to do. How do you ask them to do it? And what do you give them to do it with? And what do you ask them to do as a result are kind of guiding questions that I, I want to keep at the forefront of any involvement I have with classrooms. Yep. So Today, we're going to kind of divide the podcast into five parts. I want you to think of these as potential accommodations that you can give to students who have IEPs or 504s, but they're really for any student because as Melanie is saying, it doesn't matter if a student is a striving writer, um, which by the way, if you haven't seen her book, that really draws on her expertise and you should get it. Like, right after this podcast. (laughs) I appreciate that. I will put that in the show notes, of course. But no, no, no. I mean, I think that really does draw on your expertise. But we're not just talking about accommodations that are going to be put in like the specially designed instruction part of a child's IEP. This is just really good teaching um, across the board. So like if you have any student who can benefit from this, then great. And if you have if you hear something today that works and you want to put these accommodations into place at the next IEP meeting for one of your students, then make it official. But basically, we're going to talk about organization, materials and tools, time, varied options for response, and seating solutions. So just a word about accommodations. I just want to remind everyone that it's the way that we offer support without altering the learning expectations, reducing the task requirements, or changing any of our expectations. We are not really talking about modifications today because those entail adjustments to the learning expectations and lessen the task requirements. So we are not going to get into that today. I think it's really important to know that as a special educator, those are distinct columns that we choose from. So whether you Mm -hmm. have modifications or whether you have accommodations are two very distinct things. And while while children who are in special education certainly have access to accommodations, those those accommodations can also become more universal in in many classrooms than maybe they are. And you can think about it that way as as we're talking. Mm -hmm. And would you say that 
you want to seek to accommodate first. And then if the accommodations aren't working, then modify. Absolutely. Okay. And I, and I think that that comes from the guiding belief and, you know, the title of my book that every child can write. Mm-hmm. And really, I do believe that every child can write and most children can write at pretty high levels if we provide the types of accommodations we're going to talk about. Okay. So let's, let's, let's get going in. on talking about different ways that we can help kids organize and, and different ways that we can help teachers set up organization systems for them. Mm-hmm. So I think it wasn't until my fourth year of teaching that I heard the word backwards planning. And I was like, well, what, what is that? But I came to understand what it was and how that is a very useful accommodation. So I always knew when my students were going to publish or have an assignment that was due. And it was a way of basically looking backwards from that date to help students figure out how they're going to get through all parts of the writing process so that they would be ready to go on the same date as their peers. And this can happen on a paper planner. It can happen on a calendar. We can do it digitally, but it allows that chunking of assignments um, so that kids can make it through well. Again, I don't think that that is like a novel, like, oh my gosh, idea, but it's a huge concept to have in mind for the students who struggle with executive planning, Mm -hmm. because those are the kids who really, really need to see the final product and know what they're taking aim at. And Mm -hmm. honestly, I am one of those. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I do much better if you show me what I'm aiming at and I can have that vision in my head before I really get going and doing it step by step. I want to know what it's going to look at. Or and, that gets, and that goes back to the idea of having immersion days before you jump into a unit of study so that kids can see what it is that they're going to write. So it's not just like, oh, I have to publish my literary essay on this day. It's like, oh, here, let's study some literary essays and this is what you're going to do by this date. I think that immersion has to happen if kids are going to have an understanding of what it is they're producing. Right. And maybe one of the things to keep in mind with children who have IEPs or have 504s or need different accommodations is that maybe they need to see that product more frequently or more regularly than other students. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of think, okay, I showed that to them, but it was at the beginning and maybe there's a memory issue. Maybe there is a visual recollection issue, whatever the case might be, but they need to see it more and you have to have that kind of regularly available to them. That could be something to think about as you're going through your unit and you're thinking about different learners in the classroom. I agree. Um, How about daily planning? You know, I'm a fan of the plan box, um, but not every kid is able to sit there and write out a plan. And I've long said that they can turn and talk to a partner, they could talk to the teacher. But as I was thinking about today, I was like, you know, there can be not a choice board, but like a menu of options for what's going to be part of their plan that day. And then once students have those options, they can choose from them. What are you thinking about that? I mean, that's basically scaffolding their options. And that's a really powerful thing to do. Sometimes you can pull your own choice and you can make your own day. And sometimes you need 
an option. <laughs> like don't right. don't give me this wide open day that I can just do whatever I want. I need to have choices and I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I feel like we so often think when in writing workshop, we don't want to tell students what to do. And we're still not telling students what to do. We're giving ideas, options, choices. All of those things are really important. Right. So you and I have very strong opinions about graphic organizers. And do people know this about us? I guess longtime listeners do. I actually, I, I like graphic organizers, but I like graphic organizers that don't take more time than writing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, there's two ways that I think about graphic organizers and kind of clauses that I will say about them. One mm-hmm. is that planning in my head, and I, this is like a good rule of thumb for me, that the planning should take between 10 and 20% of the time of the whole piece. So if your planning and the filling out of the graphic organizer is taking as much time as the drafting or more time, you have a problem. I think that's a so, lot of what we've seen in yeah, many so places. Yeah, so that's one caveat. And then the other caveat is I want the graphic organizer to be something that kids can create themselves. Mm-hmm. So if they are not close to being able to create that graphic organizer themselves, whether it's you know creating slides that serve as graphic organizers or boxes and bullets, those are things that are pretty accessible and pretty copyable for kids. Like I can almost always teach a kid to make boxes and bullets or create a slide template for themselves. Right. But these fancy caterpillars or these big elaborate webs or whatever. They're really not necessary. They can't, and, and kids can't replicate them. So that's my caveat for graphic organizers. Right. I remember my mother-in-law um, who passed away last year was a fantastic literacy coach. And she really helped me when I was starting out as a teacher. And I remember her saying like, don't use a graphic organizer if you want a student to retell a story. Have them retell it across their fingers. They always have their hand. And I was like, huh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's the same thing. Like, what can they just do by themselves? What is always accessible and available to them so that they're not reliant on someone handing them a worksheet? Because I feel like a lot of times accommodations are like graphic organizers, graphic organizers. Here's another graphic organizer. And it's got to be more than that. And I think that that 10 to 20 percent, I don't want to call it a rule, but guideline you just gave is really a very wise way to think about how that graphic organizer use can be helpful. So I think the other thing to keep in mind with any of this organization and tapping into kids and their agency and their power with it, and I would just highlight student agency, like how are kids taking ownership Mm -hmm. for what they're going to do and how they're organizing their time, is to always tap into the power of them talking about it Mm -hmm. and ask them to do that Retail, and that's a Marzano concept, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that is a, how can you say this lesson in your own words? How can you tell me your plan of what you're going to do with your language? And there's something about being able to do that that is really, really beneficial for all kids. Agreed. I'd like to talk about one more organizational accommodation. 
it's basically the idea of pairing any oral instructions with visual or written directions. So any type of instructions or teacher messaging, kids need to hear it in different ways. And I think it's all kids could benefit from seeing it and hearing it. Um, And I think when necessary, having a kid repeat back the directions or information in their own words to ensure that they understood it is really critical. And what you're talking about is modality. Mm -hmm. Right. So just, is there a visual modality? Is there an auditory modality? Is there a verbal way that kids are using it? And the more that you tap into those different modalities is part of UDL and it strengthens the learning for all kids. Mm-hmm. When Stacy and I first started our podcast, we researched various platforms and we made the great decision to use Zencaster for our recording. We've been really happy with this decision because for one, it's super easy to record a podcaster with Zencaster. We can log in using our browsers and start recording a high quality podcast right away. There have been a couple times when we've had unstable internet and Zencaster has multi-layered backups that keep the recordings in the highest quality, a very relieving feature. With many different features and services, if you have thought about podcasting before and realize that you need a lot of different tools, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. To get started, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use our code TWTPOD. You'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. We want you to have the same easy experiences we do for all our podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. So coming back from the break... There's so many different options for materials and tools that we can have during a writing workshop. And all of those different options are really helpful to all students, but especially students who have any kind of a learning disability or a challenge with writing. So let's dive into those. Mm -hmm. Writing utensils. Yeah, writing utensils, big deal. We've talked a lot about pens and the importance of pens. You want to go on that one, Stace, or want me to? Because I know we both have some strong feelings about it. Yeah. I mean, we barely have any pencils in our house. I want to see like what everyone's written. I want to see their crossouts. It's okay if it's messy. And the same thing in a classroom. I think that providing different types of pens as well as pencils allows students to pick what works best for them. Some kids work better with markers. And for students who may have dysgraphia or other types of fine motor challenges, having pencil grips and not just one type of pencil grip, like I'm talking to my second grade teacher who only had one type of pencil grip, having different ones because some kids still need help in elementary school with that tripod grasp. Others really just, you know, need a little bit more support where they're really pushing their last two fingers into their hand while the other ones are holding. There's so many different ways that we can do that, but having options really matters. Right. It's an occupational therapy thing, really. Mm -hmm. And if you study yourself and you study the difference in the amount of work that your fingers have to do with a gel pen versus a pencil or even different lead types, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. and right, there's, there are pencils that 
respond better to me that are, you know, number two versus number two and three eighths or number two and a quarter or like the mechanical pencils, whatever it is. I know that there are different ones that respond to the strength of my pressure mm-hmm. and different kids really have different amounts of strength that they can put in to their pen and a flare pen might feel infinitely better to them than a pencil or a marker or a gel pen for that matter. It's a personal preference, but it really relates to the finger strength and occupational therapy. So yeah, it's we, not just about prettiness. Right. I, I'm thinking about mechanical pencils, which is what I would always keep in my upper grade classroom. And my first grade son keeps trying to use mechanical pencils. That's the only ones I have around the house. And he just keeps pushing it and pushing it and breaking it and pushing it and breaking it. And it's because it's just not working for him. So we had to get some regular pencils in here because otherwise he becomes frustrated that his point is constantly breaking. And I'm like, oh, well grow into it. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. We'll see. Right. And I know we've had a whole episode on on writing utensils, but I will just say that that is a really good instance of a kid who would end up with a pencil, a regular pencil, and legitimately continually break it during mm-hmm. writing workshop. And that's going to lead to unbelievable amounts of off-task behavior where kids are spending their time at the pencil sharpener instead of in front of their paper with their pencil going across the page. Mm-hmm. You so. said paper. Let's talk about paper. I think with any of what we're talking about, the role of the teacher is to look and see what is getting in the way of the kids. And there are a number of kids who I watch who move diagonally across the page. You know, they start with oh, yeah. with like 10 words on the line. And by the time they get to the bottom, there are two. Mm-hmm. And you you might be listening to this and envisioning the, the sloping writers. <laughs> uh, one of the things that helps them a lot, and for I do think that there's a correlation between that tendency and dysgraphia, but... A thing that helps them a lot is to take a pen and just take a line and make it right down the left side of the page so mm-hmm. that they have that visual cue. And again, I think about UDL, they have that visual cue to go all the way to the end of the line. Mm-hmm. And that's a very simple, like, do it with a highlighter and a ruler. You don't need to buy special paper for that. You don't even need a ruler. It doesn't have to be a, a straight line. Like You've never seen me try and draw a straight line. I guess I need a ruler. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's not a big thing, but it's just a little quick fix that will help someone. When you're talking about things like OT related, I remember the occupational therapist in one of my schools sharing the raised line paper. That's really expensive, but it's great tactile feedback for kids who have trouble staying in the lines. I have a few kids who benefit a lot by that. And again, it's the teacher's job to be watching and seeing, does this make an impact or have an impact on that student? And if it does, you have your answer. Yep. I want to think about some other materials and tools that may not necessarily be like the first thing people think of. Like they're think maybe you think of pens and stuff when we say materials and tools, but I'm thinking of an editor or proofreader who's not the student. 
Okay, not another student, rather. So like working with a capable adult, whether it's you or a service provider who can help a student prepare their work and get it ready for publication. Often, I remember Mark Overmeyer talking about this, how like he doesn't have students edit each other's work because they often introduce more errors. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, I did some things wrong. Like you're thinking about going back if I knew then what I knew now. And I think that that's especially the case with students who need that extra support. They need to be working with a capable adult. As adults, we have editors who edit our books and it really matters and makes a difference to have someone who's a a bit smarter or better than us editing our work. I would just say, again, the caveat to that is that you don't ever want adults to be giving kids the message that they can't do this without an adult. Agreed. Their job has to be or their learning has to be that they can do this and they are capable little writing beings who Mm -hmm. can do it. And once you have an adult that gives the message that the only way that you can write and be successful is if I'm sitting next to you then you are supporting a learned helplessness that I would never, ever want to support for kids. And that's not really what I'm saying, but I agree with what you just said. I'm talking about like during that final stage of writing, when everyone's getting it ready, I think it helps to have someone who's at least a little more knowledgeable. 100%. One of the things that we didn't talk about and then so related to the pencils and pens and writing utensils is paper. And I will just say, I think that the power of paper is constantly overlooked and it is a huge and important accommodation for any writers in the classroom. So the number of lines that you are giving kids and what you're asking them to do on those lines is a huge accommodation that you can offer all students in the room. Mm -hmm. And again, we have at least two, if not more episodes on that, as well as multiple pieces um, on the blog. Stacy, you are amazing at knowing the different fonts and the things that you can do with fonts. Can you just say a couple words about fonts? I know that you've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Yeah, I have. I think that often these really swirly, cutesy fonts get in the way of understanding a message when we're reading it on the paper. So I really like very simplified sans serif fonts. It could be Arial, it could be Helvetica, it can be open dyslexic. I think it's open dyslexic or open dyslexia. I can't remember the name of it. Dyslexia. There's so many fonts that can really help with reading and focus. Um, And if you're using a digital text and like students are peer editing for each other using Google Docs or whatever you use, We can teach kids to change the font of their writing partner's work to just make it easier for them to read. And we can also change the spacing as well between sentences. I think spacing also matters. Again, I can link to a post I wrote on that, which really goes into it in depth. You made me really aware and self-conscious of the colors even that I put on Mm two charts that I use with kids and making sure that there aren't too many colors that the cutesiness and the beauty of the chart gets in the way of the accessibility for kids. And mm-hmm. again, I'm, I'm purposely using that term because it's a UDL term, but how do we make sure that the visual tools even that we're using are accessible to kids? And again, the, the color and the amount of busyness that's on it, I would just say and toss out at you as something to talk about. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to be boring because sometimes 
it's okay. It makes the, it just makes it more accessible. As we think about charts, it's one of my favorite things to have. And I just, I do want to say a few things about it because I think there's so many ways to make charts accessible to students. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've gotten teachers to do is to create small versions of charts that they can cue kids to go and get themselves. Mm -hmm. And what's really beautiful about that is that you can teach kids to have the agency to go get what they need. So it's almost like a step process Mm -hmm. of, I suggest, it's like guided, it's like guided release, right? Or gradual release. It's, I make the decision suggested to you. I suggested to you a little less strongly, you make the decision and you go do it yourself. And Mm -hmm. that's really, that's a, that's a beautiful thing for kids. Mm -hmm. We have pockets on bulletin boards that contain those charts and they're almost like a library. So kids can use them that way. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we have done is we've done a much better job at having the charts be digitized so that we can for kids who are third grade and up are really doing most of their composing on the computer, they they can have that chart right side by side with what they're writing and they mm-hmm. can use it that way. It's so, so helpful to have those reference sheets and stuff. You know, giving a word of caution, I think we often see really cute stuff online that are reference sheets or great charts and we're like, oh, that looks perfect. I'm going to copy it and have the kids throw it into their folder. Well, I think it's really important that all kids have some instruction in that chart or reference sheet prior to it just being thrown into a folder because then it's not used in the way that it needs to be used. Maybe one of the most powerful things you can do as you're working with kids and charts is ask them if it's, if it's helpful. Mm -hmm. I was working with kids just the other day and I had little miniature versions of the charts and I asked them if it was helpful mm-hmm. and they were able to say yes and here's why. So that's something, I guess, you know, the, it's similar to where when I'm coaching and working with adults, I don't give people things unless they ask for them. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, if there's a need and if somebody sees something as helpful, then then they want it and they use it. Right. It's not because you're not a generous person. Anyone who reads your post on two writing teachers knows that you always share. But I think that that's a really good point. If you need it, it's here for you. But I'm not just going to hand you everything and litter your inbox or your folder that's in front of you. Right. I want to just, before we move on, I want to just say, you know, one of the really cool things that you can do and you can think about doing, and I could see this almost being like an entire podcast, but If you set kids up with graphic organizers that are digitized, and by saying that, I I tend to like using slides, Mm -hmm. and I teach kids how to make them themselves, and this is really part of the materials. It's like duplicating paper, Mm -hmm. but I set up the slides where there's two sides to each slide, if you will. There's Mm -hmm. the top long rectangle, which slides kind of default to. Mm-hmm. And then instead of having the one, I have two and I purposefully put outlines around them. Mm-hmm. And that way I can put this, the chart that kids need or the checklist that kids are working on right there on the left side of that slide. Mm-hmm. And they can draft on the right side that or vice so versa if they're a left-handed person. Mm-hmm. 
And again, that's thinking about accommodations and kids, Uh but I can just, they can then have that right there as a visual representation for them to work on as they're going through the process. That's been a really powerful accommodation for many, many students. I really love that, Melanie. I'm so glad you shared that. Let's go into thinking about time and, and how we sort of think about the, the power of time and, and what we think about and how we can really make time matter to all of the students in the writing classroom. So we know that some kids need extra time because they have some processing needs or they write slowly. It doesn't matter what it is. When a recursive writing process rather than a linear one is honored, this is so possible. Everyone doesn't have to be in the same place on the same day in, in a writing workshop. Can you just define what you mean by recursive writing process just for anybody who's listening and is like, huh? Sure. So let's talk about linear real quick first. Linear is where everyone is brainstorming and then everyone is nurturing, then they're drafting, then they're revising, then they're editing, and then they're publishing. It's very linear. It it just goes step by step by step. Most writers, most adult writers do not work like that. Um, And so a recursive writing process really honors the fact that the writing process is messy and you might be drafting. And then on the same day, you might be revising what you drafted. And there might be a time at the end of the independent work time where kids are given an editing minute to go back and edit some of their work. So it's not just a here on Monday, we do this on Tuesday, we do that. It's, it's, it's messy. It's kind of like how I think I work and possibly you work. I'm not sure. I'm going to plead the, yes, just a little, Okay, (laughs) all over the place. Mm -hmm. But I think the point is, is that in even the same writer, spends different amounts of time in different parts of the process, and mm-hmm. that can be honored. Yep. Yep. Let's talk about wait time. I think that's like when you're in any teacher preparation program, you hear about wait time and how it's important, but there are students who need extra time to process what the teacher is saying, um, but also what other kids are saying during a writing group or working with a writing partner. And I think that we have to be really intentional when pairing students with one another that the other kids know that wait time is necessary and it's honored and there's no stigma attached to it because some kids need more time to think. And obviously we do this in conferences. We give kids wait time when we confer with them one-to-one, but I think it's really important for other students to provide wait time to their peers. One of the things that I, maybe I love the most about writing workshop is the connection it has with SEL and mm-hmm. really, and and building empathy for the people who are working in it, and that seems like a really important part of it. I I work with a student, and I have one particular child in mind who really, really needs a lot of wait time. Like mm-hmm. this is a kid with a significant IEP and significant disabilities, uh, but. If I give him time, mm-hmm. he frequently, I don't want to say surprises me because it doesn't surprise me anymore. Mm-hmm. It might um, surprise someone else. How's that? It could surprise somebody else of what he's able to do after 
sometimes it's a minute of mm-hmm. silence. And I have to really be disciplined in giving him that time. What I will say I've taught him to do is to say to me and be responsible for saying to me, I am stuck or I am thinking. And Mm -hmm. he knows that I will cue him with, are you stuck or are you thinking? Mm -hmm. And he knows that if his response is, I'm thinking, then I do expect that he's going to have a response for me. That's beautiful. Really, I, I'm just like, okay, let me write that down. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I think that, that that is a very, very intentional strategy that both he has and I have. And what I'm working on with him is him being a, having the ability and the agency to say, I'm without stuck. my asking, I'm, thinking. I'm stuck or I'm thinking about mm-hmm. it. And, and then, then eventually being able to say that to peers. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Because it's a writing workshop community. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. that helps him out, just transfer that outside of even writing, like, Mm -hmm. because it's something that he would be able to do in everything he does. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about breaks because um, I have been working on this book and I am noticing I will just sit at my computer for too long and I need a break. So I finish some work, I get up, I take a short break. And then I go back and finish the next part of what I plan to work on. Same thing with kids. Kids don't need a BIP in order to get a break. Um, and breaks look different for every kid. And I think it's really important to think about how certain kids might need breaks at certain times during the workshop and how it possibly prevents a problem before a problem starts. And again, I think about universal design. Yep. Like there are times for me when I say to myself and bribe myself, you're going to sit down, you're going to put a timer on, you're going to write for 30 minutes and you're not mm-hmm. budging and then you can go hit the chocolate chip bin. <laughs> and, right? I mean, that's that's real and I'm a pretty good writer. Whereas there are some students who may need to, again, have agency and be able to say, okay, two minutes and then I'm going to get a break because I know that two minutes is really a long time for me mm-hmm. and maybe others say 10. But again, it's it's you knowing kids and being attuned to what will make them be their best writing selves. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about extra instruction and reinforcement. I, I feel like I'm a broken record with know your kids and know what is mm-hmm. meaningful and impactful. There are some kids... You know, and and again, if I think about this, this one with the wait time who I mentioned, I need to remind him each set, each time I work with him of what we did and what the outcomes were and how it was. And we have that visual and we go back to it and I remind him and I kind of trip his memory and then he's with me. Mm-hmm. And there are other kids who don't need that. And that's, both are fine and we accommodate and and take care of of all. Mm -hmm. Some kids need more small group instruction. Some students need to confer with a teacher prior to turning in their final draft. I think, again, know your kids, know what they need, but these are accommodations that can be provided to students in a more formal way, but also in an informal way. 
again, like, I guess if you're, if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, you keep saying that, like, then yeah, I keep saying it, have it be your mantra too. Mm -hmm. Is it working for the kid? Are you teaching the writer and not the writing? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be something that can be gradually removed? Yeah. Or is it going to be something that the kid can take over for themselves that you can Mm -hmm. teach the kid to take over for themselves? When the answer to those questions is yes, to any of those questions, then it is a great accommodation. If it is an accommodation that is building more and more dependency on the adult, as opposed to on the accommodation that the kid can create themselves, then you have a problem. Last summer, my daughter decided to make writing in a daily journal her summer writing project. Out of all of the choices at the bookstore, she selected the Little Heroes Journal, which empowers kids to develop a growth mindset, a can-do attitude, and the confidence to be themselves. I couldn't believe that she wrote in her journal daily. She did it without me pushing her to write because she enjoyed expressing herself using the prompts the journal gave her. Best Self is the creator of the Little Heroes Journal, as well as other journals, planners, conversation decks, and guided tools for your personal growth, professional development, romantic connection, family bonding, and social connection. Their products help you get to where you want to go, one task, question, and reflection at a time. Best Self helps you make the most of those in-between moments to nurture yourself in your treasured relationships. Two Writing Teachers podcast listeners will receive 15% off their best self order using the code TWTPOD. That's T-W-T-P-O-D. Follow the link in the show notes to check out their website. And we are coming back. And I also, I do want to just acknowledge that this episode is longer than our regular episodes tend to be. There's just so much to say about the students in the classrooms and the different accommodations that can be in place as we're thinking about those learners. And I don't want to, I don't know, like come up short. We don't want to break it like two episodes. Like if you've already like finished your commute to school, well then I hope you'll finish, you know, your drive home later with us or pick this back up when you have time. It's the beauty of a podcast, right? So it is. Anyway, Apologies for going longer than usual. Acknowledgement of that. Recognize it. We talked about it on our break. See, we get breaks too. (laughs) Right. So, you know, again, leaning into those concepts within UDL and the principles that that Mm -hmm. are underlying those, there are really so many beautiful options that kids can create and come up with in order to show what they can do as writers. And I, I do want to talk about the varied options for responses that kids can, can have as writers. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk a little bit about end products, Stacey? Sure. I think in our very first Digging Deeper Dialogue, we discussed this, that not everyone's end response needs to look the same. So allow students to respond in the form that's easiest for them that lets them showcase their learning, whether it's spoken or written. I'm thinking for a how-to, maybe some kids are going to demonstrate the how-to as opposed to writing it across pages. I'm thinking slideshows, speeches, videos. There's so many ways 
to demonstrate learning and mastery of a genre, we have to realize that not everyone's end product needs to look the same. We're living in such an amazing age, right? I'm just yes. finishing reading Hamnet. I don't know if you've read that, but it's uh, it it's about Shakespeare and the time he was growing. So I've been sort of emerged in that century and oh, wow. the quills and the paper and the different pens that they had to use. Mm-hmm. And we are not living in that age. And I think it's really important <laughs> to acknowledge that and celebrate it and embrace it and know that not every child is going to learn how to write script on parchment paper and needs to do that in order to express their thoughts. And right. But if we teach kids, the goal, the goal is really to teach kids to express their thoughts and teach others and share their stories. And there's so many different ways to do it. And let's embrace that. What you said fits in nicely to digital tools because in the age of Shakespeare, clearly they didn't have a spell checker, a thesaurus, um, Chrome extensions, you name it. I think uh, we often see accommodations as using a digital spell checker, but there are so many digital tools that can be used. You know, part of all of this relates really closely to assessment and what Mm -hmm. we're looking for as we're Mm -hmm. assessing writing. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more thought and the more reflection that you give to that, the better it is for kids. Because there's so many kids who are strong writers when we think about coming up with ideas and having voice and telling really beautiful stories or writing beautiful pieces or being persuasive. But they get bogged down and they think of themselves as terrible writers because they're messy or they're bad spellers or they can't say things exactly the way they know they should be said. And I think there's got to be reflection and care and a lot of thought that goes into how we communicate what kids are good at doing and what kids need work at doing. Mm-hmm. And that can play into their IEP goals. There can be goals that are related to focus, elaboration, craft, as opposed to just having conventions goals, because that is something that many students will struggle with. So why are they getting dinged for it? Yeah. And it matters. But again, we've talked a lot about why spelling matters, right? We had a whole podcast on it. We did. And there are more and more tools that help kids with it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, more and more emphasis on how do you find ideas and explore those ideas and relay those ideas in meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. So, and again, I feel like this is another podcast brewing of what are IEPs and how can we think about goals and and making those goals and objectives really meaningful for the kid based on what they need. Mm-hmm. And so just real quick, this makes me think about assistive technology, like having a predictive word processing program like CoWriter or using speech to text because sometimes typing is really hard for kids so they can speak into the program and it writes it down for them. I know you have some experience with a couple of different programs. Do you want to talk about that or do you want to save that for a different episode? I feel like that's going to be a whole nother episode, but I would Mm -hmm. say to listeners, 
check in with Jess Carey's recent post that was on to writing teachers, and we'll link it in the show notes where it talks about really using talk to text in a meaningful way. Because one thing I will say that I see over and over again is really bad talk to texting. <laughs> <laughs> and and we want to be careful of that because a tool, if, if I go to use a knife and I use the wrong end, I'm not going to cut my bread well. Mm-hmm. And you've got to teach kids how to use the technology in meaningful ways. A tool is only as good as the user who's mm-hmm. using it. Agreed. Shall we move on to the last part? Let's move on to the next. Okay. Seating solutions. I've long talked about the importance of focus spots. Um, I mean, that's kind of like a form of preferential seating that we see in so many IEP accommodations. Preferential seating does not necessarily mean putting the kid by the teacher. It means allowing them to sit where they do their best work. I, I feel like I want you to say that again. Like all of these accommodations are really designed, like anything we've said in this podcast has been designed so that you are thinking what is going to allow the student to do their best work. So whether it's the the marker, whether it's the paper, whether it's the AI tool, whether it's the charts, whether it's the checklist, whether it's the seating and the focus spot, it's all what is going to help the child and provide access for them to do their very best work. Right. And we've talked about flexible seating a lot on the blog. Um, and I, I've shared like flexible seating in classrooms um, in the book, Lynn Dorfman and I co-authored Welcome to Writing Workshop. We have lots of pictures of flexible seating, but there are many schools where the typical desk and chair are still there. And there may or may not be a budget for having flexible seating. And I get that. So um, let's talk about a couple of cheap ways and a couple of more expensive ways to have flexible seating. I will never forget walking into a classroom, a third grade classroom, and almost like, I would say, half of the students had a TheraBand looped around their chair legs because it helped them control, like do something with their legs. They needed to move while they were sitting, but you know, they needed that sensory feedback. So that was really helpful. More expensive can be like an exercise ball or wobble chair so that kids can, you know, wiggle, but they're still working. The one thing that I would say about it again, broken record me, is study the kid. If, yes. it, if it is a distraction and they're rating less, mm-hmm. then they don't, they, they don't sit in it. No, I was working with a kid last year who was like literally falling off the wobble seat. And I looked at her and I was like, I don't think this is working for you. And Great. she's like, but my teacher lets me sit in it all the time. I'm like, your teacher is wonderful. But like, I, I, it's not working for you right now. So can we change your chair? And then she wrote, I mean, yeah. it was like, I get it. Like it was available. That was, you know, available seating. Hey, why not move around? But again, as Melanie just said, know your kids, get what works for them. I want to just highlight and underscore the belief that I have that kids want to be successful. Mm-hmm. Like, it's easy to look at them and think that they want to be distracted and they want to avoid the task. And at that moment, they 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 very well may. Mm-hmm. But at their core, they want to be successful. Almost that's almost human nature. So 
I will say in the introduction of my forthcoming book, I quoted you. I don't remember the exact quote, but it was from the Striving Writers book where it was like, no one wants to struggle. Right. Like no one is actively waking up in the morning looking for struggle. So it's up to us to remember that all kids are striving to do their best work and they need some accommodations to help them get there and we can give that to them. Yeah. Flexible seating doesn't need to be a, a TheraBand. It doesn't need to be a ball. It doesn't need to be a swinging chair. It can be lying on the floor on your stomach. Which right. Or standing can... up at a bookshelf, like a low bookshelf and writing over there just because mm-hmm. it hurts to sit for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like, where do you do your best writing? For me, I do it in bed. I'm not going to lie. I like the softness and the different ways that I can do it and the scoochiness that I have. And for some kids, lying on their stomach is their best way because it puts the weight the way that needs to be for their occupational issues Mm -hmm. and isolates them. And also, you know, nothing for nothing, it's a bigger decision to get up from your stomach than it is from your chair. So you're more liable to, Uh (laughs) it is, you're more liable to stay put. Mm -hmm. So I say that to teachers and kids a lot. Like this will keep you on task a little longer because it's more work to stand up. So I think we can close it out. I don't know. Can, since you're the special educator who has that background, I'd like you to, to just close it out and say a few extra words. Yeah, I would lead always with the belief that kids can write and that there are places and spaces where you can make writing more accessible for students. And If you are finding those places and spaces, then you will see growth. And if you're not seeing growth, then you keep looking for different ways to accommodate and provide those pathways and on-roads for kids. Thank you for listening to the Two Writing Teachers podcast. Check out the show notes for links to the items we mentioned in this episode, as well as ways to connect with us. For more about the teaching of writing, head over to the Two Writing Teachers blog at twowritingteachers.org. If you liked what you heard today, please share it with your friends and colleagues, post about it on social media, like, subscribe, and leave us ratings and reviews. Our music is by Lemon Music Studio. If you'd like to connect with us, email us at contact at twowritingteachers.org. Thanks again for listening. Let's teach, learn, and write on together. 